You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's, and we're glad that you are here with us as we continue our joyful study through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, now, we've been trekking through this book now for a few weeks, and we've titled this Life Under the Sun. And what we've said is each and every week that uh, Solomon, the author here, is pursuing things like wisdom and pleasure and work and justice, and he's concluding that this life under the sun is imperfect. It's fleeting. It's vanity, as the Bible says. And today we're going to realize a different type of vanity under the sun, one that we can all identify with in this room, and that is the vanity of loneliness, isolation. Now, when you think about loneliness, I think sometimes we think of extreme isolation. Perhaps uh, this movie, uh, Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. Anybody ever see this movie? All right. Uh, it's a pretty good movie, right? It's kind of weird, uh, but it's a good movie, right? And we think this, this is the definition of loneliness. Like you're literally stranded with no one around you, and all you have is a volleyball to talk to named Wilson. Or perhaps you've thought of loneliness as rejection. I can remember one of my lowest moments in my high school career. Uh, there's many, but this is probably the lowest for sure, uh, where I asked a girl out for prom and got rejected. Now, uh, I thought it was a great idea. She was on the soccer team, so I got the soccer ball, and I wrote on the soccer ball, will you go to prom with me? And I kicked it to her, and uh, she kicked it back. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, It was actually her dad that wouldn't let her go. I don't know if that's better or worse, but uh, either way, um, it's not the greatest moment in my life, right? Maybe you see it as rejection, and maybe you see it as uh, jealousy, the desire to be in on things, and you feel like even though you're surrounded by a lot of people, you're on the outside looking in, and I can think of no better quote than our man Michael Scott from The Office who says, <laughs> I love inside jokes, and I hope to be part of one someday, right? <laughs> this idea that you're surrounded by a lot of people, but you're not on the inside. You still feel isolated. You still feel lonely. Now, loneliness comes in all shapes and sizes. It comes in all different perspectives. And perhaps a great illustration of this comes from Charles Schultz, who is the creator of Peanuts, right? And one of his characters, Linus, once says, I love mankind, but I can't stand people. And then he gives this definition of loneliness. The writer says this, I compare the panic in loneliness to the dog we see running frantically down a road pursuing a family car. He's not really left behind, for the family knows that it will return. But for that moment, in his limited understanding, he is being left alone forever. And he has to run and run to survive. It is no wonder that we make terrible choices in our lives to avoid this feeling of loneliness. You see, loneliness is a problem that we all face in life. It's a problem that we all have to deal with and reconcile. And Ecclesiastes doesn't just let us get away with some nostalgic, naive optimism that life's just going to be okay. Right? Every week he's addressing this, that we can't go through life with this kind of nostalgic, naive optimism that, yes, perhaps sells some good books and perhaps makes for good TV ratings and daytime TV, but it's not real- realistic. It's not how we can live this life under the sun. It's like trying to get in a kitty float in the middle of the ocean in a hurricane and survive. It's not going to happen. Ecclesiastes gives us the dose of reality that we need. And today what it's going to address is something that's very common to our humanity, and that is loneliness. It's not good for us to be alone. 
Now, our main idea from the text today is, is going to be very similar to what we've been saying. The, the big idea of Ecclesiastes is that there is life. Life has meaning in God. Today, we're going to simplify that and say our relationships in this life have meaning in God. That there is a remedy to this problem of loneliness under the sun. That through Jesus Christ, through relationship with God, our relationships are not purposeless. They're meaningful. They're a gift from our Lord. And so our outline's going to flow straight from the text, and it'll be up on the screen. The first thing we're going to deal with is the vanity of loneliness. We're going to see that in the first eight verses. And then we're going to see the blessing of community, the blessing of relationship in verses 9 through 12. Now, uh, as a way of recap, if you're joining us uh, for the first time, we've been in this study of Ecclesiastes, which we've titled Life Under the Sun, because this phrase is used uh, some 30 times in the book. And we said that, that Solomon, the author, he's writing from this perspective that we've called a practical secularist. And a practical secularist is someone, perhaps think of a modern-day character, someone who believes in God or believes in some kind of higher power, but looks at life and thinks of life as this is all there is. In other words, we think about everything that we can have under the sun, all of our jobs, our pleasure, our relationships, our family, our kids, our money, everything that we have under the sun is all that we have to have meaning and satisfaction in this life. And Ecclesiastes shows us that as we go after these things, as we toil after these things, at the end of it is vanity. It's fleeting. And the big reason is because of death. Death just steals meaning from life under the sun. Ecclesiastes reminded us that no one's going to be remembered. Nothing will last. It's all vanity. It's all fleeting. In the end of chapter 3, Solomon actually gives us a really good summary of, of where we've been so far. And he says this in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. You see, Ecclesiastes speaks this honesty that we need to hear in our hearts, that even as we strive and we toil in this world under the sun, in the end, it's vanity. As Mark Twain once said, despite our deepest need to be remembered, the universe insists on forgetting you. Right? It's vanity. We don't have the ingredients to give us life under the sun, the ultimate meaning and satisfaction we crave. And so Solomon's addressed this time and time again. But, but what Ecclesiastes is teaching us is, is not that life under the sun, it's not meant to make us complacent or lazy. It's actually meant to sober us up so that we can go through life with clarity that we can see that there is life above the sun, as we've said, that Jesus can actually shine a light into this world and he can illuminate this world so that we can enjoy it for the good gifts that God has given us. The goal of Ecclesiastes is actually to free us from a fight that we cannot win, this striving after the win that is impossible. It's to free us from that. It's meant to, to give us a dose of reality that there is actually hope. There's hope in this life. And so today our text is going to turn to the struggle of isolation and loneliness, which I believe is one of the biggest struggles in this life. And not only do I believe that, but the Bible says it is as well. Because as we address the vanity of loneliness, we have to acknowledge that loneliness is not just addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's throughout the Bible. 
And in fact, loneliness is the first thing that is addressed that is wrong with humanity in the Bible. You go back to the creation story, and we're reminded that as God has created first man, Adam, he looks at Adam in a world that is perfect, his creation, he looks at Adam and he says, it is not good for him to be alone. It is not good for him to experience loneliness. Loneliness was a problem. And that means that even if we were to try to create the perfect world under the sun, and we had everything that we thought could bring life and meaning and purpose to us, loneliness would still be a problem. It would still be something that needs to be addressed. And throughout the Bible, we see that loneliness is one of the great adversaries of humanity. And here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon addresses it for us. But what we'll notice about the text today is that he doesn't just flatten it, right? He doesn't just say loneliness comes in one shape but it comes in different varieties. And all these different varieties that we'll see in this passage, they all lead to the same end, vanity, striving after the wind. So let's see a a few of the the different ways in which loneliness can affect us. The first we'll see is called the outcast. The outcast. Let's look at verse one. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And so as Ben was talking about last week, uh, ending chapter 3 really kind of ends with this, this, this theme of God's justice towards the injustice of this world. And Solomon's kind of picking up on this theme at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. But notice he doesn't address that in the injustice of this world that God's going to one day redeem it all and set it right. He doesn't go into some intellectual debate about justice in this world. He doesn't just say, wow, this world's wacky and crazy. Look at all the crazy things that are going on. He actually addresses something very humane, something that speaks to our humanity. Notice he spends his time talking about a very sad reality. And the sad reality is the outcast. That there are those who experience suffering in this world. And it's not just that they experience suffering in this world. It's that they have tears. And that the tears of the oppressed, there is no one to comfort them. That there are those who have power in this world, and yet there is no one to comfort them. In essence, what Solomon is painting for us is is a picture of real people who have real things that have happened to them, real pain that's happened to them in this world. And they are crying real tears, and their tears are hitting the floor because there's no one around them. And he says, this is a sad reality. Have you ever cried before? It's one thing to cry, but it's another thing when you cry and your tears are hitting the floor because there's no one there. There's no one there to bring comfort. And he says that this is actually, in some senses, a worse evil than just the injustice that is done to them. It's not just that they're experiencing suffering. It's not just that they're experiencing oppression. It's that in that oppression, in that suffering, there's no one there to comfort them. And he says there are people who have power, to comfort them. And yet they're preoccupied. Something else is going on. Maybe they don't have it within their power to stop what's going on, but they can at least provide comfort for those who are suffering. But these outcasts, these individuals are overlooked. Their pain is real. Their isolation is real. But those who have power says that they don't have time or capacity to do anything about it. And the conclusion he gets to in verse 2 is this. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. 
but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Psalm is so gripped by what he's seen that he says that this fate, this fate feels worse than death. One of the things that I think can help us as Christians is to recognize that, that this feeling that he's describing here, this pain, this angst is a real feeling people have. These are real thoughts that people walk through in life when they experience suffering, when they experience oppression. But the Bible's clear. What, what does the outcast need? When we feel like we're an outcast, what do we need? Well, God has provided for us. He's provided the comfort of our Savior and people who can walk through our affliction with us. You see, the Bible is clear that God is not a distant God. He, he's not one that just hovers over the sun. But Jesus came and he dwelt among us. The Bible is clear that in his dwelling among us, he cared to, for people. He met the needs of people. He, he cried tears over his friends. And today, if you feel like an outcast, there is no one who is closer than Jesus to you. God is near to the brokenhearted. But not only that, but God calls us as his people to be near, to sit with those who are afflicted, which means that we spend time with people, which means we come alongside those who, who, are, who are crying so that their tears don't hit the ground too. This is the type of church we want to be here at King's Church, not one that just kind of believes in this kind of nostalgic, naive optimism that everything is going to be all right, but a church that says that we can have real tears in this world. And tears can flow freely, but the, the floor is going to be dry because there's going to be people who are there to comfort. That's the type of church we desire to be. And today, if you're here and you feel like an outcast, if you feel like in your loneliness that you've been forgotten, that you've been abandoned, that there's no one there to comfort you, encourage you to know right now, God is near you. And not only is he near you, that there are people in this room who don't want you to feel that way. There are people in this room who want to comfort you. There are people in this room who want to point you to the one who is there for you in your greatest need. And so if you feel like that today, if you feel like you've been an outcast, if you feel like you're, you're lonely and your tears are hitting the ground because there's no one there for you, then come talk to us. We're here for you today. We love you. We want to connect you to those who can help. But you notice Solomon does this in there. Sometimes when we think of loneliness, we think, okay, loneliness is, is for those who, who are forced into it, who don't have another option, right? We think of our Tom Hanks character again, those who are cast away, those who are outcasts, those who are, who are so isolated from others that they, they have no other, uh, no other uh, reality but loneliness. But as Solomon continues, he says, no, it's not just that those who have no option of loneliness, but it's also that we in ourselves create loneliness, that we create our own loneliness through the things that we strive for in life, the things that we try to earn, the things that we work for in life. So the second character he addresses here is not just the outcast, but the jealous. Look at verse four. He says, then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. Right? Solomon's calling out here is jealousy, envy. And jealousy leads to loneliness because instead of rejoicing in the good gifts of God's people, the people God provides for around us that may have something that we don't have, we are spending our time in competition with them. Think of going to a gym, right? 
Uh, I don't really go to the gym, but for those of you who do go to the gym, right, uh, I used to go to the gym. Uh, there's, a, there's a great kind of healthy competition in gym culture, I, I, and I kind of do miss it, right? You get in there, and everybody's pushing each other, and, and you're trying to do better, but there's also an, uh, an ugly side of that. Because at times, you can start seeing the, the guys around you or the ladies around you, and you see that they put that extra plate on the squat rack, or they, they max out a little higher than you, or they do a few more reps, and they go up on the leaderboard, and you start to envy them. You start to get jealous of what they're creating. But what happens when that individual gets hurt? And they're out of the gym for months, right? Does your heart not rejoice a little bit, right? J- just a little bit, that you can finally get ahead. That because of what they've experienced, you can finally make your way up on the leaderboard, right? That's what Solomon's describing here. He's saying instead of lifting people up when they're down, if we're fueled with jealousy, we'll actually inside rejoice. We'll rejoice because now we can do a better job. We can rejoice because now we can have what we really want. And this drives us to loneliness, not because there's not people around us, but because when we're in competition with everyone that God has given us to actually bless us, to be an encouragement to us. But instead of seeing the good gift of others around us, we're constantly trying to outdo them. And he says this type of jealousy, it's vanity because it's irrational. It causes us to treat others like a buffet line. I want his job. I want her relationship. I want that car. And as we do that, the reason why it's irrational is because we build a life that's impossible to gain. It's impossible to gain. Solomon says it's like trying to grab a handful of wind. (laughs) You're never going to do it. And even if we could build that life in our jealousy that's impossible to gain, guess what? Death will rob it from us. Death will take it from us. See, jealousy always derails our chances having a true sense of community because it's the exact opposite of what Jesus says true community is. Jesus says in true community, we rejoice in the good things that happen to one another and we grieve the bad. But jealousy calls our hearts to rejoice in others' grief and to find sorrow in their good. And what will evade our hearts if we are given over to jealousy is community, is relationship, because we can only pretend to be close to others because we want what they have. So Solomon, he addresses this jealousy, but then he addresses also the lazy. Look at verse 5. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. I love the brevity here, right? He's saying that lazy people here are also driving to isolation and loneliness because they don't do anything, right? Relationships, community, that's, that's hard work. Building connection takes time. But the lazy just fold their hands and they do nothing productive, and if you spend your, your time around someone who is lazy, you'll find that they self-isolate, don't they? The lazy self-isolate, they create their own state of loneliness. Because if we're lazy, we're not life-giving to others, we're life-draining. And he says here, the lazy, what they do is they take their hands and they fold their hands, and what happens is people stop feeding them after a while. And so what do they do? They feed on themselves. It's a pretty graphic illustration here, <laughs> Right? He says the lazy turn into a form of self-cannibalism. And it eats away at our ability to have meaningful part in a larger community. So one of the easiest paths, one of the easiest paths to drift into loneliness and isolation is just to do nothing. It's to fold your hands and to do nothing. He addresses the, the outcast, the jealous, the lazy. 
And then the discontent. The discontent. Look at verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Right? He describes these two hands representing like this, this, this urge to grasp as much as possible. Right? Think of like when you were a child or maybe still as an adult if you still go to these kind of parties. That's cool. But when, when a child has a pinata, right, and you strike the pinata and, and the candy flows, and what do kids do? They go with their two hands and they grab as much as they can. He says this is what life is like for the workaholic, for the discontent. We just take our hands and we grab as much as we can of whatever stuff we want, whatever more we're striving for. But then he, he contrasts that with this handful of quietness. He says the discontent is, is weighed down with wanting more of everything. They can't really rest. It's striving after the wind, but the hands of quietness is filled not with stuff, but with peace. In verse 7, he says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. What Solomon is addressing here is those who are so consumed by the desire for more that they never even step back and ask the question, why? Why? so consumed with the desire for more, they don't even define what more is here. It's this unhappy business of trying to do more, accomplish more, and they never take time to even reflect and say, who am I grabbing this for? Who am I going to share this with? Why am I actually doing this? And we can be so consumed in life sometimes to try to achieve and gain things in this life that we can actually become captive to those things, and it can blind us from the reality of who are we even sharing these blessings with? We can try to achieve a bunch of stuff that, that, that achieves our ultimate dreams in life, but then we end up realizing, for whom did we gather this for? And our dream turns into a nightmare. He says, this is the life of the discontent. Someone who just wants more, and in the dust, they actually isolate themselves. They, they, they tend to gravitate towards loneliness because they never even think about, why am I trying to store these things up? Why am I trying to go after these things? What is more in the end if I have no one to share it with? And so whether you feel more like the outcast today, or the jealous, or the lazy, or the discontent, what Solomon's getting at here is it doesn't matter how we get there, but we have to acknowledge that loneliness affects us all. That isolation is a problem in our humanity. But there's hope. And Solomon actually gives us a good gift here. Solomon says that there's actually a gain that we can have in this life. For the first time, we actually see Solomon say, there, there's actually there's a reward that we can have in this life. There's a reward in our toil, in our striving, in our struggles. And he acknowledges that that good reward is relationship. That the blessings that we can have in this life is community. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Solomon's mathematics here are pretty, pretty strong, right? He says two are better than one, and later he'll say three are better than two, right? There's something really good here that Solomon's speaking of. There's something better worth pursuing in this life. 
And that thing that is better is community. It's relationship. It's friendship. The rewarding work, the, the, the rewarding toil that takes place in this life happens in the context of relationships. Verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So you notice in all the examples he gives, he is saying that it is better to have someone come alongside you in this life. If you fall, they can pick you up. If you're cold, they can keep you warm. If you're in a fight, they can come alongside and help you. And sometimes when we tend to think about friendship or community in this life, we don't think in these categories. We, we think of, okay, they need to have the same affinities as we do. They need like the same sports teams as we do. They need to have the same common interests as we do. They need to have a sense of humor for us to laugh with. They need, they need to do something good for us. They don't need to be too socially awkward. They need to be extroverted. They need to be introverted. And we come up with these lists of what a perfect relationship could look like, what a perfect community could look like. But Solomon has already addressed the fact that we live in an per- imperfect world under the sun. And what he gives us here is a dose of wisdom for what true friendship can look like. He gives us a dose of wisdom of what true community can look like. And not only that, but he gives us the simple task of how we can apply this so that no one in this room can feel inadequate to be a good friend today. And no one in this room can feel inadequate to understand the blessing of community. He says, simply, is there someone that you know that's in a low place today? If you do, then Solomon says, go pick them up. And if you can't pick them up, at least crawl down to meet them in their distress. The blessing of community. He says, do you know someone who is cold and all by themselves today? If you do, then he says, even if you don't have the right things to say, you can commit to go sit next to them so they won't be cold anymore. The blessing of community. And he says, if you, do you know anyone who is getting beat up in this life? And even if you feel like you can't fight for them, you can stand with them. You can do some jujitsu or Muay Thai or whatever you guys do these days, right? You take out your little can of pepper spray, do something, right? You stand in the fight with them. This is the blessing of community. And the beauty of God's word and the beauty of, of God's redemption of our humanity is that we don't look back at this and say, well, this is all there is. But we can say the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it's like a floodlight that shines light and gives meaning to this community for us. It shows us what it looks like to live out the Christian faith. And the beauty of the Christian faith is before we do this, do this, do this, we come to Jesus and we say, we accept your help first. Because you are the one who has shown us what true sacrifice looks like. You are the one who has embraced us before we ever embraced you. You are the one who fights for us when we cannot fight on our own. And not only has Jesus modeled community for us, But he has come into our lives if we know him, and he has put in our hearts a desire for something better than the toil and the striving of this world. He has come near to us. Ephesians 2 says it this way. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In essence, when Jesus goes to the cross, his sacrifice doesn't send us farther away in our loneliness. It brings us close. The beauty of the gospel is that though we deserve to be isolated from God, though we deserve to be separated from God, though we deserve to be on our own because of our sin, he brings us closer. And when we're brought close to God, we're reminded that not only does Jesus forgive us of our sins, but he lavishes his grace upon us. In other words, he gives us completeness in our lives so that we don't have to strive for more. We don't have to strive for validation in the things that we have. He can free us from that. Which means today, if you feel like an outcast, you feel like everyone has forgotten you, you don't have to live in that reality. You could be reminded today that even though the rest of the earth may cast you away, Jesus didn't. He came after you. And if you're jealous today, if you're driven by jealousy or discontent, and you just want more in this life, the gospel reminds us, Jesus reminds us, that we have everything we can possibly imagine in him. He has provided it for us so that we don't have to work for the jealousy of others. We can work to build others up now. The gospel reminds us that we've been created for this type of community. As we look to Jesus, he reorients our pursuits, he changes our posture so that we can see that even though standing with someone who is crying is an inconvenience to our lives, even though when someone's cold and they need a hug, it's an inconvenience to go warm them up, even though it's an inconvenience sometimes to fight on behalf of others, Jesus reminds us it's not the end of the world to do those things because those inconveniences are worth it because they don't compare to the inconvenience that our Savior bore for us. The inconvenience he bore for us to bring us back to him so that we could see that death is not our end, that there is life above the sun today. And so as we come to our time of the Lord's Supper, reflect on what Christ has done. I just want to leave you with, with a few challenges here. Number one, if you don't know Jesus and you feel like you are, are, are being beat down in this world in your isolation and loneliness, look to Christ today. As we've said time and time today, he is near to you. He loves you. You don't have to keep striving after the win. This fight that is unbearable, this fight that can never be successful, you can trust him, the one who has fought for you, the one whom you can find real relationship with the one who can grant you meaning and purpose in this life. And for our brothers and sisters in the room who are part of King's Church, let me just leave you this challenge. Be quick to apologize. Be quick to apologize and forgive. You see, one of the things that we find that is hard in community, one of the things that drives us to loneliness is not that there's not a lot of people around us, but it's that we push people away who are trying to help us. One of the best things we can do for one another is don't allow strife to continue to break us apart, but to be quick to forgive, to be quick to say, I'm sorry. Let's not forget that the people God has placed in our lives in this room, they're there for a reason, which reminds us of my final challenge today. Be invested in God's community. God has redeemed us. He has saved us to be a part of his people. He has bought us with a price to be a part of a family. In King's Church, we are not a perfect family. We have our blind spots. We have our weird uncles in the room, right? Just kidding. All right, we have things that make us 
imperfect. But commitment is not a burden. It's a blessing. It's a grace from God that he has provided people to walk through this life with. To look to one another and see that the Christian life is not one of isolation or loneliness. Joining a church and committing to a group of people that are imperfect is precisely how God says we grow and we find joy and we find satisfaction in this life. It is a good reward for us. And so, King Church, let's spend our time as a people today who says we can lift others up when they're down. We can keep others warm when they're cold. And we can help stand with others in the fight of this life. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.